The difference is though, Facebook, we're interrupting people. We're we're targeting them based on their behavior. Google, we're targeting them based on their intent. They're typing in something into Google, like need to sell my house fast, and then they click your ad. This is the Yield Coach Show, episode 40. Hey everybody, this is your coach Ian Brown. A few announcements, Yield Coach Capital has opened its doors to investors looking to multiply their money while working with yours truly and our varsity investment team. We recently closed our 170 acre Gainesville, Florida industrial track and our limited partner investors are on pace to make two and a half times or more on their money. That opportunity is gone, but don't miss the next one. Be sure to join our investor list and never miss a deal again. You can join our investor list by the portal, which is in the show notes of this podcast. It's in our Instagram bio link, and you can also do it at yield-coach.com. If you join our investor list, we will get you the free gift, 107 questions to ask a deal sponsor, and a discount to our employee to entrepreneur video course, which is packed full of information and case studies to kickstart your investment success. Now is your time to take the field. I am your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, thought leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. Very excited to have our guest today, Mr. Brian Driscoll. Brian has created an interesting platform. It's called Motivated Leads. He has blended his digital marketing experience of over 20 years with real estate. He bought his first investment property in 2014, and he married the real estate and digital marketing world to create his own growth and assist in his client's growth. Now he owns over $5 million in real estate, and he's going to tell us how to make it happen. Brian, welcome. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, We've been fortunate. Our guests have been a little varied lately, and, uh, and I personally enjoy that. So it's not just hardcore investors every time. So I'm excited to have somebody like yourself who is an investor, but brings 20 years of this digital experience, which is a, not a strength of mine. So I think we can have a little bit of fun. Uh, I'm I'm an authentic, uh, uneducated digital newbie. So um, I'm kind of old school. So I think we'll have some fun with some of these topics. But tell us about yourself, Brian. Yeah, sure. So like, like you were saying in the beginning, I got into real estate. I'll even take a step back. I got into real estate initially back in 98. I bought one of Ron LeGrand's courses in the back of the room, pulled out my credit card. And I, I, I bought his course. Got a whole bunch of leads. We were doing newspaper back then. It's like putting out in the newspaper. I got a whole bunch of people calling me. I didn't know what to do with them. So pretty much failed miserably. Didn't have any money. Didn't know what to do. Uh, and then I got into digital marketing probably around 2003, somewhere around there, early 2000s, on a platform called, it, it was Odesk. Now it's called Upwork. And I was just freelancing on there for like 20 bucks an hour, self-taught doing SEO. And I started getting really good at it. So um, that turned into an actual agency. So I was consulting. Then it turned into an agency uh, called Think Big Marketing, where I was dealing with large, large e-commerce companies, uh, lead gen, like national stuff. And uh, it was just all the different, all the different niches, right? Uh, so just a general agency. And then I got back into real estate about 10 years ago. I, I got my first deal off a wholesaler and uh, I saw the wholesale fee. I found it on Craigslist, right? I don't know if you guys, if you've ever found deals on there. And uh, I saw the wholesale fee at the end. I'm like, just 15 K, which the deal made sense with the fee. Like, I wonder if I could run my own ads and generate leads online, you know what I know. So mm-hmm. I slapped up a website, started generating leads and that, and I, we were crushed it. So here that we are the, today. That was the genesis, huh? Yep. Yeah. I think I've done three deals off of wholesale and, and they were all a little bit different. I, I usually am not the wholesale buyer, but um, there was one, it was a downtown building in Jacksonville. The wholesaler did almost no commercial. And then here comes a five-story, historically significant building in downtown where I live. And I was like, holy crap. And so um, it had a title issue. And I, at the time, I was doing title work. So I knew we could resolve it, but you weren't going to be able to resolve it without like an 18-month quiet title. We went ahead and bought it cash, finished the quiet title and did really well. But I love the wholesale deals. They're like a little bit outside the box where like you're kind of like your bread and butter, run-of-the-mill, single-family Flipper type might not want them. That's just me personally. Um, right. We did, um, what else did we buy from a wholesaler? Bought some land and the land was being marketed just as essentially 
uh, a couple of rental properties on some on an excessively large site with excess land. The zone I went and researched the zoning and it was great apartment zoning. So I went ahead and bought it, mowed the yard, cleaned it up, and sold it as a, a townhouse development site. So I I do um just a little note to the audience. I do like to review and get on as many wholesale lists as I can and kind of look for the ones that are outside the box to see nothing against wholesalers, but to see if maybe they miss something because it's not in their traditional underwriting to deal with these atypical properties. But back to you, Brian. Yeah. Hey, you know what? We're going to show it to 50 people all at once that give us your highest and best. You know, like, I, I don't, I don't really like those games, but if you build good relationships with people and they know you're a serious cash buyer, a lot of times you get dibs, you know, I only buy in one zip code. So it's, it's slim pickings for me. So, you know, we're kind of, I think we're going to jump around a little bit today. We'll have some fun. This buying in one zip code thing. Well, let's talk about that and tie it into tie it into this digital stuff because I, I, I'm going to confess. I saw your one page and I was like, almost all of my deals, other than the three that I mentioned that were wholesale deals, a lot of them have just been, I've been in and doing this for like 17 years. People know me as a deal guy or a broker, or an attorney, whatever, but just kind of this problem solving investor guy. And so I, I end up having relationships that just, they, I literally get phone calls like, hey, what do you think about this? And I've had great opportunities through relationships. Let's talk about, you know how like we talk about forced appreciation versus passive. I feel like your world is almost like the forced appreciation of marketing, like like the pay-per-click, the SEO, the mail. And I have done so little of that. So let's jump into this. You invest in one zip code, you dominate it. Let's talk about that. Yeah, sure. So I invest in one zip code mainly because I'm busy. Like I'm super busy and I don't want to drive. I bought a property, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. It was about 30 minutes away and I do the rehab and I, I buy and hold, right? So we're fixing them up and I'm driving there like twice a week. They want a contract. I'm like, dude, this is taking an hour, hour and a half with meeting them. So I just decided I'm only buying properties I can get to in five minutes, which limits. It's like really, really limited. I'm only buying like four or five places a year now though, because of that. But also I can, it's almost hundred percent passive. Like I go meet the seller, lock down a deal. Then I pass it to the project manager and then I come back when it's done and then we run it. You know, so that's why I do it just mainly on time. Eventually, if I want to get into real estate more, I'm going to have to broaden up. But for now, I like doing digital, you know. So let's talk about, and I understand that just on the on the proximity thing, I've done deals. My largest deal is actually two and a half hours away, but we have full third party management. It's an 83 unit apartment complex. And um, that one is actually incredibly easy. However, what I've noticed is the small, medium to small deals that there might not be enough margin to bolt on full third-party management and still hit the numbers you want. Some people would say, well, just do a better job underwriting, pay less and bolt on management. But I think, especially in today's environment, well, I'll speak for Florida, it's still very competitive. We still have some markets that are actually appreciating year over year. I know other parts of the country are, are having declines, but as of this conversation, we still have multiple markets in Florida that are year over year up as of right now. Um, what I'm getting at is like to make some of these deals pencil, you might have to self-manage them. Or if you pay a manager, you might just break even. Um, so to your point, keeping within five minutes within one zip code and dominating can be a good approach. Uh, what, what kind of stuff do you do to dominate this zip code? Uh, so basically I'm cherry picking. So I, I do generate leads on a national level, right? So we market in Pittsburgh and I send all the other leads to everyone else and I just keep the zip code. So it's basically like anything that comes here. And then what happens is if I get a lead here, I'm on the phone with them in like, like two minutes. I'm usually meeting them within an hour. Like to, to dominate digital, you have to be fast. You have to know what you're talking about and and be able to build relationships with people quickly and lock the deal down. It's not like, hey, I'll talk to you. I'll give them a call in a couple of hours and I'll schedule for Saturday if today's Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And usually you, you get first dibs then. You know? and, if, and if you know what you're doing, you can usually lock it down. So you're marketing for sellers to owners nationally, and you're keeping right. all, you're keeping all those leads that are in your in your five minute nearby zip code. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We generate a lot of leads for like investors nationally, and I just have a system. I can pull the zip codes. You know what I mean? It's like anything that comes in my areas, shoot them to me. Anything that comes out elsewhere, we just sell them. All right. I want to let's let's jump into a little bit of the marketing side because we don't have a lot of marketing centric guys and gals on the show. So SEO. What the hell is it? Explain it to the audience. How can investors use SEO to benefit them? Yeah, sure. So SEO, it's, it's search engine optimization. Basically, what you're doing is you're trying to rank your website in the free section of Google. 
So, and you do that, if you think about Google's purpose, right? Google is a search engine. Their primary purpose is for people to put in questions or things they're looking for. Google's job is to show you the most relevant answer. So when you're doing SEO, you're trying to make your website the most relevant for phrases like sell my house fast in Jacksonville, or sell my house fast in Pittsburgh. You want to be relevant for the phrases that your target audience is searching and rank at the top. And then people search, you get leads, you're not paying for them. Um, and a way to make your site relevant is you have to have really good content that's unique. I see a lot of people in this space have content that's, it's, we call it duplicate content. So if you buy some of these platform websites, they'll come with the content already written and it'll just change out some words like city and name, things like that. If, if you think about it from the search engine's point of view, if you see two websites with the same words in the same order, how do they know which one's more relevant, right? So you want to have unique content and build your website's authority. But in a nutshell, yeah, SEO is ranking in a free section. And uh, yeah, it's free leads. Now, what would be like a reasonable cost associated with, you know, getting your SEO dialed up? Because I've never, I've never engaged someone to do that. I've thought about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this where you'd have like a, a carrot site or is that something different? No, you can use any site. I have a carrot site for a local one here in Pittsburgh. Carrot works, WordPress works, any website really works. Um, that's just a platform. Um, costs, it could depend. Like uh, for someone good, you're probably looking at 1500 to 2500 a month to do like content writing, link building, all that kind of stuff. Um, or you can do it yourself. You know, if you, if you're like the learning type, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I would say SEO generates only about 15 to 20% of our leads locally. And if you're doing SEO, don't expect results for like six months. It's really slow. But once you rank, I look at SEOs like owning a house, Google pay-per-click, Facebook ads, uh, even pay-per-lead. That's like renting the house. SEO, once you rank, you, you have it there for a while. Paid ads, once you pull your ad spend away, your traffic goes away immediately. Well, let's talk about the um, the other one, the pay-per-click or Google ad. So if somebody wanted to just like shoot like a rocket right now, That's was that where you would put them in this uh, Google ads pay-per-click space? You know what? Normally I would do it, uh, Facebook ads, and depending on the market, market specific, right? But normally Facebook ads, if done right, will get really, really good quality leads. And then I would add Google pay-per-click on top. Reason is Facebook, on average, we can get a lead for about, and I'm saying a lead is somebody that tells us why they want to sell, how fast they want to sell, how much work their property needs, confirms it's not on the market. Like we ask multiple questions. Um, so that, that's what I consider a lead. On Facebook, you're looking like 125 to 150 bucks a lead. On Google, you're probably looking 250 plus. Mm. The difference is though, Facebook, we're interrupting people. We're, we're targeting them based on their behavior. Google, we're targeting them based on their intent. They're typing in something into Google, like need to sell my house fast. And then they click your ad, right? So it's two different things. Reason I like Facebook better though, Facebook's on behavior targeting. So if you ever notice in your Facebook feed, it's always stuff that you've been looking at. It's pretty interesting. Like it, it fits you, right? It's like you go into Amazon, you're looking at shoes and then you have shoes in your Facebook feed. Same thing here. And Facebook, we're not bidding per click. And we're not bidding against investors, really. We're bidding on an impression share basis, which means we're paying Facebook, say, 20 bucks to show our ad a thousand times. And we're bidding against a shoe store and a bakery down the street versus Google. We're in direct competition with investors. So some of the clicks are like 50 bucks a click. So it's a competitive game because you're only in competition with investors versus everybody. All right. Just for my own knowledge, how is this happening where I'll be on Amazon, you know, looking at uh, jujitsu gear and then I jump on like Instagram, totally unrelated platform and boom, here comes, you know, rash guards and all kinds of gear for, for rolling and grappling with sweaty men. How is that happening? Yeah. So that's the magic of marketing, right? You have, so on Facebook, you have something called a Facebook pixel and almost every website in the world now has a Facebook pixel on there. It's just a code. And what that does, that tracks people. So it's kind of intrusive, right? So when you're browsing on different websites, that Facebook pixel is triggering showing, okay, Hey, you like jujitsu things. And then they're going to show you ads based on that behavior. And there's, there's even different things that you can do too. Like if you're on a website, like for example, jujitsu stuff, and if you're on that website and you click add to cart, we'll track you. And now, now we know you added something to cart or purchased it or didn't purchase. So if you add something to cart and you don't purchase it, we'll stick an ad in front of you with a promo code. Versus if you purchase it, we'll remove you from our targeting on our cold ads. 
And then we might hit you back and retargeting like 30 days. So it's, it's all based on behavior there. This is probably not the question you actually want, but is there any way for us to be de-pixeled, to be not, to be not targeted as a consumer from like site to site? Um, Apple, Apple gives you the option when okay. you have an Apple phone. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you can do ad blockers. Things like that too. Yeah, a lot of people use ad blocker stuff like that. Like me, I don't really mind being pixel because it's showing me stuff I want. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it all depends on uh because Facebook's gonna show you ads regardless. It's just in the in the feed, they're either showing you what you want, or if you're blocking it, then they just show you what what they think you want. But yeah, I mean ad blockers work. Um, I don't think if you're an incognito, I don't think that blocks it. Um DuckDuckGo, if you don't want to be tracked either on the on the Google side, that search doesn't track. Interesting. Okay. There's a yeah. few little takeaways there. All right. But back to actually tracking, getting these owners, getting these sellers that are motivated. So sounds like the Facebook is the biggest bang for the buck. You can turn it on instantly. Um, I would not, I, I like your point about on a Facebook ad, you're interrupting them. Like we all know, well, I bet anyone who's listening to this has social media. Um, there might be a few that don't, but you know, as you're scrolling and like you said, something interrupts your eyes, interrupts your attention and starts to ask you about a property or distress or a sale versus someone who's like, I need to get this asset gone. You know, grandma died, whatever happened, I need to sell this thing. And then they go to Google. Um, I like your point about not competing with other investors though, because you know that Google search is very valuable. But like you said, you might have to spend like twice as much to get that click. Um, there's probably also, I would imagine, a, a technological savviness with the Facebook user where like maybe you can get more accomplished through uh, direct messaging or Facebook messaging and then phone calls and text. I, I could just see it being a little bit more advanced than maybe somebody just, you know, uh, hunting, pecking into Google, trying to find like sell my house, this zip code. Yeah. You know what? Google's actually trickier and I, I'll tell you why. So first here's, here's why they work well together. First, I'll talk about retargeting. So say we're doing Google ads. <clears throat> we send, you go to a website, you want to sell your house fast, right? You're just browsing right now. You're just looking because you don't even know what you're looking for yet. So you hit our website, boom, you leave. You go to the next guy, you leave. We pixeled you on our website, Google pay-per-click sent the traffic in or SEO, whatever it is. Someone made it to our website, didn't fill out a form. We pixeled you. Now we retarget you on Facebook. So we're showing ads to people that are only interested in selling their house. They've already been on our website and we can put testimonials, things like that to build the credibility for 30 days later when they're ready, right? Um. So on that side, on Facebook also though, there's different ways to run ads. So if you're if you're planning on running ads yourself, they have something called lead forms, and then you can run conversion uh, ads through your website. A lot of guys, especially new guys, try doing lead forms. You can get leads for like five bucks, and they suck because what's happening is you're it's a, the ad looks the same, and then you click the ad. Facebook will pop up a form inside of Facebook. It pre-fills your information that you signed up with Facebook 15 years ago and they call that a lead versus I, I prefer to, to, and if you're going to do this yourself too, have them click an ad, use your website as a disqualifier. You want to make it hard for people to fill out their information. Like be really direct. Don't tell people, Hey, find out how much your house is worth. Things like that. Uh, you're going to want to say, sell your house fast. We buy houses. We pay cash. We're investors. We're not paying top dollar. Send them that page, have them fill out a form, get their phone number, email address, all that kind of stuff. Then after you do that, fill out a second form with all the additional questions. Like, why do you want to sell? How fast do you want to sell? How much works it need? Once they fill all that up, then that's a quality lead because the other people just dropped out. Mm -hmm. So I know it was a long-winded answer, but um, those are the things I'm, I'm looking at on that side. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, can, I can see that where you split it. Yeah. So like take, take the core contact information first and then take them to like a stage two because at least you haven't lost the contact or, or that amount. You could, you know, retarget or whatever or reach out to them. But then you have the second phase with all the information about the property. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you do anything? Well, before I go to that, I just so you know, I'm going to ask you about like physical mailers and things like that and those little robot pens. But that'll be next. What do you currently, what is your favorite combination um, with digital marketing to generate leads? Because it's a, it's, it's a competitive environment right now. Right. So I like uh, Facebook and Google pay-per-click and also depending on budget, it depends on everyone's budget. Like if you have two grand budget, start with Facebook, but I like in this order, uh, Facebook, Google pay-per-click and then YouTube and TikTok 
we're testing out TikTok, things like that. And it's getting decent results. Um, same with YouTube ads, but I like everything on a digital side. Like I've done other things also. And, and uh, even I'll take a step back to all marketing is going to work. So I just happen to do digital because I can do it myself too. I don't have to pay someone to do it. But like, if you're doing mailers, you're doing SMS, you're doing cold calling, like everything's going to work. It just comes down to the KPIs you're going to get. If you do it consistently and don't just like send one batch of mailers, mm -hmm. you got to give everything like a six month shot. But then, yeah, I like everything on a digital side. And I, obviously you can do a lot of this work yourself where maybe the audience would have to engage somebody like yourself or an agency to do some of it. What would be to actually, based on your experience, to to acquire, to close on an investment deal? Um, I'm sure you probably track that KPI. What is it? What's the average ad spend to closing? Um, it's usually one out of 10. So it's going to be market specific how much the lead costs. But usually out of 10 leads, six of them come through. They just want too much money or whatever. Four of them are deals you want to lock up, like you would want, and you lock down one. So like on our paper, because we do paper lead also, say the average lead cost might be 300 bucks there. You're looking at $3,000 per acquisition, like three to four grand. But you have to call people fast. You have to have good processes and things like that to be able to, like we can supply the leads. You have to call them within minutes, not days. Mm -hmm. Not days, yep. Um, I, I did learn, I think I've said this on another episode. I put out a mailer with uh, like, I think it was Ballpoint or one of the robotic pen companies. And it was multifamily at the beach. So I'm in Jacksonville. We have three beach communities. I picked the two that I really wanted to target. And um, one I left out because they have a 90 day minimum on short term. And just in case the deal was close, I wanted to be able to do a, a furnished short terminal. Um, I put out the mailer. I think we did, it wasn't a crazy batch, it might have been five to 700 mailers. So like by marketing, not a ton. We got um, we got a handful of calls, but here is, here is my critical mistake. I didn't calculate exactly when the mailers were gonna be hitting the mailboxes because I'm uploading uh, graphics and copy and payment information and proofs on the web. And then that company direct, they don't send them to me. They, they direct mailed them for me. Well, I didn't properly calculate that, that cycle in that time they hit. And I was like on my way out of town. <laughs> uh -huh. And, uh, and so I did get back to every lead, but yes, to your point, some of my, some of my returns were days. I mean, single digit days, but like you're saying, even, even three days, um, is kind of a long time. And so the only people that, you know, I'd, like you said, I'd say three of them, just wanted to right over the phone. What's the offer? And uh, which is very hard to do. And if I was going to do it over the phone, it was going to have to be super low and I'd still need to go see it. Um, and then, the, and then I had one that was really close and I just narrowly missed him on timing. Ultimately he changed his mind, but I feel like if I went there like the day of not with pressure, but just with, you know, competence and enthusiasm, I probably could have um, locked down this duplex uh, two blocks off the ocean at a pretty good price. But, but my point is like, you know, when you're running a, a, a small team, you know, you have to be ready to field these calls, ready to move, or someone else is going to get in there and, and eat your lunch or they'll, they'll lose interest. Yeah. You know what sucks too? I have a good story about that. So I was just in uh, Vegas this last weekend for, with my wife for our anniversary, right? I got a lead that came in, in our zip code. I called him back. It was, uh, yeah, it was Saturday. He's like, Hey, I got two properties for sale in Bethel park. Tell me the story. His dad just passed away. Things like that. I'm like, okay. I'm like, Hey, I'm out of town. I can meet you Monday or Tuesday, or I can have one of my guys swing by Sunday because my guy couldn't do it that day. He's like, okay, have him, have him come every Sunday next day. He texted me back three hours later. He says, you know what? We went another direction. I'm like, ah, killing me. So I yeah. called him back yesterday. I saw one of the houses hop on, pop on the MLS Monday. So I'm like, ah, oh, you freaking listed that. And it was, it was fairly cheap. So I called him up and I knew he had two problems. I'm like, Hey dude, like I told you I'm a cash buyer. You just listed on the MLS. Like I can buy it cash. What's up with your other property? So I went and met him yesterday, put an offer in the other one. But I'm like, that two-day span cost me minimum if I wanted the other property, like 10000 bucks, because now I got to pay a realtor fee if the numbers make sense. But I'm like, those two days, I it, the difference of me locking up both properties versus one. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? You know, like I'm out of town. What are you, you going to do? I think especially when you're dealing, like this is direct to seller, direct to owner. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do is commercial. And so like you have business entities, you have partnerships and corporations, you might even have a board that has to approve a sale. Um, it's just unlikely that I'm going to find like that, you know, distressed granny kind of right. situation. And, um, but I can completely put myself in that mindset where it's like, 
it's a knife's edge on the decision making. You know what I mean? And you've got to be there right in the moment. It's fickle. They're gonna they're gonna change their mind. I mean, my mom has a a great 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 parcel um, about a two blocks off the ocean um, in Jacksonville's beach community, and um, I could just see like if she all of a sudden got a wild hair and wanted to sell it, I I, I could like see her. I could like see her moving on like you know uh, a nice friendly charismatic cash buyer keeping it easy goes to her right away where i'm you know what i mean we're like you're 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 kind of disinterested i don't want to say disinterested but you're less than motivated decision tree uh corporate or commercial seller you know even if they're in bankruptcy or having problems i mean it's still kind of a slow glacial process so um right no i, I think yeah, the motivation is yeah. different like commercial guys they don't have any emotion in it versus this guy i mean when yesterday it's a hoarder house he's like dude i just don't want to deal deal with this. I just want someone to come buy it. Let's close the estate out. I don't want to get dumpsters and empty the whole place out, but there's the commercial guys that it's just business there. There's no, they don't have to clean it out or anything. They'll just pay someone. No, it's true. And most of your commercial guys there, there's exceptions to the rule, but most of us are not physically doing the work to the property. Some are, I mean, I know some mom and pop commercial landlords that have pretty big portfolios. Um, but even those people, they're at least going to have like, generally speaking, a partner or two where they're going to go back and have to have like a discussion, a meeting over it. You know, it's having that decision tree that's a few people. Because as you know, even if you you get a hit, you call somebody, things are going well. If they say, oh, I own this, you know, I inherited this with my brother and my sister. We need to talk and we'll get back to you. You probably know that's not good. Um, right. You know, just by, just by the virtue, the person you're speaking to can't make the final decision. And they can't explain what your offer was properly. That's true. That's true. That happens a lot, especially, like you said, in conversations where you, things are going. I mean, we're humans. We've been conversing, you know, since the since the dawn of time. And so it's like we can get to a conclusion really fast verbally. But then to actually even to move into like an LOI, which is the shortest form commercial agreement you're going to get, which isn't even binding, but at least it's a term sheet. Even that is usually going to be like a day. And so you start to lose a lot of momentum. And I know a lot of like the the wholesale fix and flipper community. I did I did real estate legal title and escrow for seven years. I mean, I've seen some short, short, short <laughs> uh wholesale assignment and fix and flip type contracts. But even just getting those generated, there's a there's a lag in time. And sometimes they don't reflect like the nuances of what your offer is. They should. I mean, they really, it should all be in there. But sometimes you might convey something over the phone that doesn't quite make it into the four corners of the document very clearly. Right. So, all right. Um, what, you you bought your property and, you know, you did this digital marketing, you bought your investment property in 14, you saw the wholesale fee and you decided to kind of marry these two on the real estate side. I think we've, we've, we've tackled digital pretty well. We can, how did you start to progress from 2014 to now building up this portfolio that at least in your bio, you know, 5 million plus, um, you don't like leverage, you like the Burr method. Let's talk about your personal approach, what you like to buy. We know you like to stay close to home, but let's take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I like buying three bedrooms, two baths in, in my neighborhood, right? Um, initially, when I got started though, I didn't have a bunch of money, right? So I, I saved up money and I put 20% down and took a commercial loan on. And the thing that sucked there is I'm putting my cash in there and it's just locked up. So when you don't have a ton of cash, it's like, okay, I put 20% in there. I fix it. Then I got to wait again for another year or whatever, however long it takes to be able to do that again. So eventually I saved up enough cash to go out and buy properties. I just buy them cash now. It's like, okay, you want hundred grand. I'll pay hundred grand cash. I'll put 30 into it. And then I go to the bank. It probably appraises at 230. And I pull my, I only pull my initial cash back out. I don't pull any, uh, any of the equity, which keeps my leverage really low. So I'll own 130 on a property and it's worth 230. Um, so it builds a lot of equity and I figure it's a safe play. Cause like, look back at 2008, if you're over leveraged and you need to fire sale your properties or life happens or whatever, I never want to be in that situation. I owe too much on the property or my family. If something happens to me that they can't, they can't liquidate them. You know what I mean? I do. So, I do. And you're right about the, you know, I was appraising commercial through before the downturn and then through 2008 and beyond. And it was, you know, the age of leverage. There were a lot of things that happened in, in that time period, but leverage bit a lot of people, a lot of adjusting loans. Um, I closed on the, the first single family residence I ever bought. You don't even see this loan structure anymore. It was, um, what was it? It was an 
80-15. So it was 80% fixed, 15% variable, and the and which got you to the 95% LTV. But the 15% variable reset after 24 or 36 months. And just that 15% of my loan resetting, it threw me, it, it threw my payment up over $200 a month. It was, a, I mean, I was like teaching high school. It was a nightmare. And a lot of people, to your point, got over leveraged on very fixed incomes. And it was, it was sloppy. It was, you know, predatory lending for some of it, but like all that aside, how you treat your debt really does matter. And now look at, I know you're not necessarily a commercial or multifamily guy, but the guys that are really feeling the squeeze right now got into bridge debt right around the beginning of COVID, kind of like your 2019, 2021, and typical bridge loans, 36 months, interest only with a balloon. And so payments are low because it's interest only. The old bridge product was almost the same nice low rate as your fixed takeout debt, just at a better leverage and you could finance your CapEx. And then now those are starting to mature and you're going to the market and the rate has doubled. And so that's, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's where the dead fish are starting to float up in like multifamily or some of the distress. But to your point, let's just recap. You like to do a burr where you buy the property. Let's just say the 20% goes in, you do your you do your rehab. And when you refi, you're only recycling that original capital. You're not pulling out any new capital to go into the deal, correct? Right. Yeah. I'm not pulling any profit. I just, just my original capital. And you know what? It's funny you say that on the interest rates too, because I'm seeing, so I take commercial loans when I refi. And normally they're five year, five year adjustable, right? Like most commercials are five years. So I'm even, I was even looking at this too, because I'm not over leveraged, so I'm fine, but I'm looking at the payments, they're going up. And I was thinking, boy, the people that are so close on their cash flow, when these interest rates reset, because they're going to reset within the next five years, that could put people under. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't matter on one property if it's a hundred to 200 under, but what happens if you got a hundred? Like that's real money then for a lot of these guys that got multiple properties, you know? Oh, for sure. I just, um, I was just, re- I, I look at troubled properties and troubled loans and uh, commercially. And I was just researching a large deal in Jacksonville and I can tell by their debt coverage ratio. So your CMBS loans are, you can see the information on like Bloomberg and TREP and now CoStar has it too. And per SEC penalty, they have to report this information. It's because it's sold on the secondary markets. Anyways, all that to say the information is good. It's lagging usually a month to a quarter, but it's really good information. There's this apartment in Jacksonville and we can tell based on their debt coverage ratio, they're having to feed this thing out of pocket about two and a half million dollars a year. So how long are they going to do that? You know what I mean? Even right. if they might, they might do a capital call one year, but if your property is running like a, a 0.5, a 0.6 debt coverage ratio, you're not going to do that very long. So, um, but to your point, if you keep your leverage under control and you run a conservative business plan, you know you can avoid a lot of this heartache. I, I do agree. I'm, I, I actually don't mind going in high leverage, depending on the business plan. But but to your point, you don't want to be high leverage, no value add, and adjustable. <laughs> you know, like if, right. if you couple if you couple certain things together, it's going to bite you. Uh, then all you can do is really kick it off to another buyer and hope that the economy justifies some appreciation uh, to the seller. So yeah. that, I think it's a big thing to watch. Um, interesting. Okay. And you know what? I'm a little different than most guys too, because I, real estate is not my business. So most guys need to pull cash out because they need to, that's, that's their living expense. Me, I'm just pushing money to the future. So that's just, that's why I do it. You know what I mean? One, it does allow you not to fuss with it too much. Um and some guys that are buying the type, well, we didn't really jump into exactly. I mean, the three twos, a lot of what you're buying, if you wanted to, you know, you could find fully amortizing 30 year debt and, uh, and not, not really think about it a, a lot at all. Um, so what, how did you get up to, you did your burr method. So you kind of recycled the same cash to get up to your, your current portfolio. What does it look like now? What's the portfolio? How has it evolved? Where is it now? Yeah. So I got about 25 properties now. All single families. Some of them are two beds, stuff like that. They're all all in my area, though. Single families. Um, I have like one duplex, and basically, I'm just trying to buy as many as I can. Just because right now, it's it, they're. I look at it as it's free houses. If you buy them right, then you put money into them, fix them, you get your money back. The bank gives you the loan on it, and then tenants are paying it off. So as long as you buy it right, and I don't need, I don't necessarily even need much cash flow on it because I don't need the income. So like like I said, my situation is a little different. I'm just trying to acquire 
deals anytime they pop up in my zip code i grab them and the nice thing is you get to use the the marketing services you're already doing for others and just you know turn that energy on yourself and grab the ones you like exactly your yep. backyard all right well that's pretty cool uh and your goal is as you said just to grab as many as you can you know be good to your future self and uh and one day do you see yourself just living off the properties or selling them or what are you gonna what's the end goal with this portfolio yeah, my end goal, it's like the real estate's my contingency plan. Like if anything blows up, I want to have these properties and then you can just live off the monthly income. I don't think I'll ever like retire or quit working, but I'm in a digital space. Like it could be done tomorrow. Like everything changes so much. So that's, that's like my hedge. It's like, okay, I got all these properties over here. So I got income coming in if I need it. I don't need it now. But if if it ever hits the fan, I got something over there and I'm not screwed. I like it. All right. You've got a couple of things that I was going to jump into. Um, one that's kind of interesting that we don't see too many, too many guests put on their, on their, on their bio. You had at one point, <laughs> this is kind of funny and not funny, but it's here. So we're going to talk about it. How did you go from being five foot eight, 240 pounds down to a lean 187 in a six pack? I'm not going to ask you to lift up your shirt on the show unless you want to. No, you don't have to, but take us through this this transformation. You're, you're not all financial. You've got it up here and you got it right here. Yeah. You know what? So last year I went to Disney. I took my family to Disney back in like January, 2022. Right. I saw a picture of myself. I'm like, man, am I fat? And like, I, I always thought like I was one of these diets tried doing stuff. I never knew what healthy eating was. Right. I'm thinking I'm eating healthy and you're not losing weight. So one of my buddies, he owns a title company up here in Pittsburgh. He posted on Facebook. He went from 290 to competing in a bodybuilding competition. I'm like, dude, how did you do that? He's like, well, I hired Stacy. Like, okay, introduce me. So I hired, I hired this personal trainer. She's like 65 years old. She's a Miss Universe from back in the day, but she trains bodybuilders. So I went to her. I'm like, hey, Stacy, what are we going to do? She's like, well, number one, we got to, she put me on macros. She's like, don't eat more than 50 grams of fat a day, 150 grams of carbs. And you got to make sure you eat at least 200 grams of protein which is hard. Like I was sitting there look, I'm like, that's not going to be that much. And then you're eating boring stuff all day, like chicken and broccoli and all this. But I did it. And I started like figuring that out. I was working out twice a week, lifting with her cardio four days a week. And then mainly it was all eating, which was my hard part. Like I got, I got like a fat man uh, eating habits. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to eat a whole pizza, not two pieces. <laughs> so, so I basically just started watching that stuff and tracking it on an app called lose it just tracking all my macros daily and trying to hit the numbers and weight just dropped off of me. And then I was working out with her too and lifting and um, yeah, it just, it just dropped a whole bunch of weight off me. It's the first time I've ever been able to lose weight. Cause it, I figured it's, it's all math. Like I was always thinking, Hey, you need to eat healthy stuff like peanuts and uh, bananas with peanut butter. And it's like, no, that stuff has so much fat in it. You need to eat different things. You know, once you look at the numbers, it's, it's not, it, you still have that discipline. It's not as hard though. So how long did this transformation take? This this two forty to one eighty seven post post Disney epiphany transformation. It took almost almost a year. Right. Yeah, because I was struggling with it too. Like I'd eat healthy, and then I'd break. You know what I mean? So it should have only took six months. So like today, do you guys get do you give yourself like cheat days, or is it, are you just like macros with Brian? Disciplined. Here's my numbers. Don't miss workouts. Now, so here's my problem. So I got, I went and I hit a goal. I'm like so focused on getting to the goal. Once I hit the goal, I'm like, so what do I do now? Because I'm not going to eat like that all the time. So now, now I'm focused on more given, like I was actually just talking with her yesterday. I'm like, I got to come up with like 20 things for breakfast, 20 things for lunch, 20 things for dinner. So I have choice versus just eating egg whites for breakfast. And so that's what I'm doing now is trying to figure out the balance because like when you're focused on a goal, which you might relate once you hit the goal, it's like, okay, what's next? And I'm like, okay, I got to figure out how to not have a specific goal. The goal is just going to be to maintain. You know, so that, that's what I'm dealing with now. It's like a constant struggle. Yeah, I think there's um part of it's a personality type. And it's it's hard to say exactly. We don't have time to jump into personality profiles on the show today. But I've done plenty of assessments from Gallup to DISC. I was going to do the 16 personalities. But I've learned there's a, there's overlap in, in my results. And I have to essentially, I have high ideation and vision. But the problem is my personality type, if you look at the cons, I have to essentially hack or trick myself into 
uh, procedure and structure. It's not like I can't do it, but to, when you mentioned that, it made me think of it. And you, you might suffer from this too. It's like, once you hit it and do it, and, and I have a feeling you're able to accomplish things relatively fast or maybe faster than maybe like an average person. And then once you get there, you have that success or whatever it is, financial, uh, digital marketing, health and wellness, whatever it is, you like almost immediately can become disinterested or dare I say the term, I wasn't allowed to say bored growing up or I got chores. So I, I'm still afraid to say the word bored, but you know, let's say you get bored or disinterested. It's like, you have to trick yourself into having like interest in it again. You know, what's funny. You bring that up to, do you ever do predictive index? I haven't done that. No. Okay. You should check that one out. Um, I was one of the personalities. It's funny you say that though. Um, that's one of the reasons I buy real estate. Like my, one of my reasons I always called it goal driven depression, right? So I'd shoot for like a really big goal and then I'd hit it and I don't know what to do next. And I, I'd almost get down. So like one of the ways I trick myself is I always have a project going up. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not waiting to close on this property and fix it up and be done. I'm going to have another one going at the same time. So real estate's kind of like my thing. That's always my constant something going on. And then I have the other goals in business, things like that too, that we can hit, but it never goes from hitting a big goal to nothing happening. Cause it's literally like, I'd get down. Like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I got to get my mojo back. Yeah. So we, um, the audience that the steady audience knows this, but I, I closed on a 506C syndication uh, almost exactly a month ago, at least from the time that we're talking and I'm, um, 170 acre industrial tract in Gainesville killer deal. I'm driving away from closing. Um, my partner and I were in separate trucks. We, we, off we go and I'm driving back to Jacksonville. It's like a 90 minute drive. I don't know what came over me. No music. I took side roads for, I don't even know why I did it. I'm driving to the pastures. You can almost just hear like dust in the wind playing softly. You know, I'm like, like a, a state of like serene yet calm quasi depression. And I wasn't like clinically depressed, but I was like, wow, it's over. We did it. But there's like this, like sagging, pulling, like almost letdown effect when you get done with that was a, that was over a year long effort. And it was a big deal to get it, to get it done. And then, and then it's over. And you're like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. what now? I got to let, you know, you know, like you said, like hack your way back into like productivity and excitement. It's like that big, it's almost like a hangover from the big deal. Yeah. And most people are like, hey, you got to celebrate. Like, I don't think I've ever celebrated a goal. Like, it's like immediately when a goal hits, I'm done with it. You know what I mean? So it's like, you'd figure that's a big deal. You took a whole year to get it. And those people would be out celebrating, but I don't know, some people just don't, don't work that way. No, I'm probably more more in your mindset when it comes to celebration. It's funny. I like to sell. I like to celebrate for others. You know what I mean? Like I have three kids. I'll make a big to do about like, honestly, fairly like mundane, mediocre accomplishments. But like when it comes to my stuff, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I remember like the day that I essentially on paper was like, okay, I'm financially independent. These assets that don't take much of my time pay for all of these life expenses. And I could in the theory and theoretically do this into perpetuity forever. So by definition, financially independent. Right. And I was like, I, I maybe smiled for a moment and then off you go. Like, like there was like, you know, and what's funny is not to get too far on like the personality and depression and anxiety thing, but a lot of people that live in the past or, or, or like retrospective, um, you know, they tend to have a little more depression maybe not clinical, but they might be a little bit more melancholy. And then a lot of people whose mind is in the future oftentimes have to regulate like some level of anxiety or stress. So obviously the gold, the golden thing would be living in the moment all the time. That's, I think that's a little tricky. I do think it's a good goal, but I know for me, I'm not, I'm rarely depressed and I, and it, and it strikes me when it happens. And it's usually because I'm in a ultra reflective retrospective state. Usually I'm on like nine goals in the future. And if anything, I'm just a little wound up, but I'm not depressed. Yeah. I'm I'm with you there. It's like, and you seem kind of similar to it. I'm just always driving. It's like, nothing's going to be good enough. It's like, okay, cool. We did that. Obviously I didn't shoot for a high enough goal yet. Let's go again. Yeah. Um, all right. So I've been, I've been enjoying this. I do have, um, you know, some, some, we're kind of, kind of accidentally going into some of this mindset stuff. You know, you mentioned that, you've got the, you know, the balance of family and work. We both just confessed that our mind is routinely racing in the future. How do you stay present with the family, balance all this out while, you know, running your digital marketing company and building your real estate empire? Yeah. So initially when I started, I, I just wake up real early. Like I wasn't, an, I was never a morning person, 
But when I started uh, freelancing back in the day, and I, I got an 11 year old, so I don't know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, um, I had to start making balance. Like you can't work all the time. So I just started waking up earlier and I had a full-time job then. So I was waking up at like five in the morning, working from five to eight, going to work nine to five, then setting up dinner with the wife and then working again. Nowadays, I have, I have a little bit more flexibility, but I still wake up. I wake up at like four in the morning, exercise, and then I work from probably 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then after that, I try to shut my phone off. It's like whenever they're home from school and from work, it's just I try to, which is difficult sometimes, but I just try to shut my phone off and not focus on it because it's tough. You can keep picking up your phone, looking at social or looking up emails. Like it's almost like stick your phone in airplane mode. Cause that's my, that's my biggest distraction. I think that's good advice. I think few, a lot of people talk about it, but few people actually unplug. And um, there was something here in your, in your bio about camping and, and like, we'll go camping and sometimes we'll go to like music festivals or we'll just go camping in the woods. But what's nice is, there's really no reason when you're with your family and your kids, there's really no reason to be like carrying around your phone. I mean, maybe one person can to take photos if you want to do that, but it is so nice just to have like an entire day or multiple days where you are not on your phone. You're just playful with your kids. Your mind can be, you know, imaginative. And um, I just, I'm around my extended family and I'm not going to, you know, call anybody out, but a lot of times, you know, people are just, they're near each other. They're in proximity to each other, but they're, you know, scrolling, yep. showing stuff to each other on social. And is it that inherently a problem? Not necessarily, but I think the balance is what we're talking about here. If you, I've never had like a great deep thought epiphany, you know, while answering emails and scrolling social, I might laugh, I might be entertained. Um, you know, the nature of marketing, it might make you uh, jealous or happy or sad. I mean, it's, it's, they're trying to get your attention, and, you know, but like to actually have like a deep, insightful epiphany or make a big decision to me, it's usually when you're, when you're present in the moment, I think a lot of people have those epiphanies, like they're unplugged, they're with their family. And some people have them while they're like in a flow state, like, um, surfing, I do jujitsu, or it could be mowing the yard. It's just enough to where you, it does take your attention to do it, but your mind can run to other places. And then right. boom, all of a sudden you're unplugged and you can actually think and have vision. Like the shower is a great one. Yeah. Good ideas in there all the time. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> exactly. You get tired of singing and hearing your own voice and then out, out come the ideas. Yeah. C camping is great though. That was a great thing for a family because we do, we go there and it takes my brain like a day to shut down. So like I'll go there and I'll I'll check my phone right in the morning, see if there's anything needed. And I just leave it in the camper. And then the whole day, there's nothing. And I'll check it at night to see if there's anything. And it does take, it takes like after that first day, you're like, wow, this is calm. Mm -hmm. You know, because your brain quits ping ponging all day. Well, Brian, this has been fun. I'm going to take it into some of our closing questions. Sometimes we do a deal breakdown. I feel like we got a pretty good idea of how your my deal breakdown is how you find it, fund it, fix it, exit, and have a lesson. And not to put words in your mouth, we spent a lot of time talking about the different forms of digital marketing, which is your bread and butter for finding it. Um, we know how you funded it, your own personal money. And of course, you mentioned you use commercial style residential loans. Um your your exit is a hold. Uh, we didn't really talk about your fixes. Do you have a, a common renovation plan or is it totally varied? What do you typically do to your investment properties? Normally I'm going in, we're putting in new floors, uh, new kitchens, new bathrooms. We're, we're just, we're not doing like super high fancy kitchens because of rentals. We usually go to Lowe's, um, just our white box cabinets. Um, but that's basically it, paint and then whatever else it needs. Like every property is going to be different. Like sometimes I had to go in one property had, had a bad foundation. Like we literally pulled the foundation out and put a new one in, but I try to stay away from that stuff. Now I try to stay, go with the ones that's basically clean it out, paint it, new kitchen, new bathroom and uh, windows if they need it. And that's about it. Usually like 30, 40 K. And what would be, and we know your exit cause it's a hold, you're a burr investor, you're portfolioing all this. So the last one, number five is lessons over the, you know, I think 25 properties you said um, in your portfolio, some lessons that you would impart on people from, from that journey. So lessons like um, one lesson would be for people not doing deals and just thinking about to go do it. Like that's one of the biggest ones, take action. And then also like me, I found that uh, having a property manager is great for me. So my problem when I first started was I would rent to people and they would talk me into renting to them. And then I would get punished because I rented to a bad person.
So I found now if I have that that buffer of a property manager, number one, they can do a better job than me because it's their business if you get a good one. But now renting to people is just a number. They show it to me. It's like, okay, pass or fail versus the people that are like, hey, you know what? My credit's bad and this and that, but I promise. And then you rent to them and then you get a trashed house in the six months. So that would be a big one there. Mm-hmm. I think that is a good lesson. I I um I have seven Airbnbs in Jacksonville. And I, I like I said, I don't manage the big eighty three unit, and it's great. I will say the seven Airbnbs, two of them are long term, uh, meaning six months or more, no short term tax, at least in the state of Florida. And there's something to be said about the professional intermediary. I don't have it with my local stuff. I do have it with the other and. I have this, it's a good habit to see yourself and others, but it can be a bad habit when you're, when you're doing your leasing. I almost rented to, I mean, this guy came up screeching up on his Harley, which is fine. I mean, ride motorcycles all you want, you know, leather vest, arms blazing, no shirt. And, and he wanted to pay, he wanted to pay for six months at $3,500 a month cash on the spot. Where do I sign? And I was like, I almost did it. <laughs> and, yeah. and then, and then I said, I said, um, and I did have another couple showings lined up. I said, respectfully, I need to show the property a couple more times. Well, I got a little bit of breathing room. I did find another candidate. And in hindsight, that guy, he was, if he gave, if he did go ahead and proceed, he had, he had a bad record that what he was trying to do was essentially go so fast that I wouldn't find that out. And then I have a feeling, cause this was also during COVID he was just going to squat in there. That was going to be the last money I ever saw. And then I was going to have the pleasure of, you know, maybe a year trying to get him out of there. So yeah. good lessons there. All right. Closing questions. We're just a little bit of a fire round. What are the most impactful real estate or business books um, that you've read? Richest Man in Babylon is the number one. I did that one on audio. I like that one. It's an easy one too. It's easy. I like the ones that are plainly written. I think that's why Rich Dad Poor Dad gets brought up so much. It's like, it's easy to digest. Good one. Yeah. yeah. I, I use that one, the five laws of gold. Anyone looking at it, at least look at the five laws of gold. It will, it will change your life. Cool. Um, when you're not building this portfolio and smashing your digital marketing business, what do you do for fun? Um, I do barbecue, which now with losing weight, that's a little harder. We're doing chicken and things. And then, yeah, just mainly hanging with the family. I like traveling. So like going to the beach, taking them down Florida, Disney, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. And uh, what's your best advice for eager young entrepreneurs? Just take action. Get out there and do it. Go find it. Don't get like I see, especially in the digital space, a lot of people get held up in design of websites and logos, things like that. That stuff doesn't matter. Go find the sellers. And then if you don't know what to do with them, find someone that does in JB. Like just go out there and do action versus get just being a bookworm. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the strongest words in the English dictionary is, is very short. Two letters, D-O, do. I mean, it's great to take in information, but you can get that paralysis of analysis in a hurry. Right. Um, all right. Where can people connect and learn more about you? Yeah, you can go to our website, motivatedleads.com. Awesome. All right, everybody. This has been a great interview with Brian Driscoll. Check out his company. He gave you his information. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Subscribe and rate us. It does us a big favor. But for now, that's the end of the show. This is your coach, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out. Yield Coach out.